0: Welcome to a brand new episode of Zeroing In, the science podcast. Moving further into the whole idea of unraveling the science behind building up a city, today we are in conversation with an expert from the field of agriculture and remote sensing, Professor Vinay Kumar Dadwal, who has not only contributed immensely to the field, but has also played pivotal roles in shaping India's agricultural methods and techniques through remote sensing applications. Professor Dadwal received his Bachelor's in Science degree in Botany from Hansraj College, New Delhi and went on from there to the Indian Agricultural Research Institute for his master's degree, where he continued and further received his PhD in Plant Physiology. After the completion of his PhD, Professor Dadwal joined the Space Application Centre Ahmedabad, where he served as the Head of Crop Inventory and Modeling Division. From there, he went on to serve as the Dean of Indian Institute of Remote Sensing, there Professor Dadwal joined the National Remote Sensing Centre, NRSC Hyderabad as the Associate Director and went on to become the Director of NRSC. After this he served as the director of the Indian Institute of Space Science and Technology Thiruvananthapuram. Currently Professor Dadwal is chair professor at the National Institute of Advanced Sciences Bengaluru. Professor Dadwal has made seminal contributions to the field of crop irrigation and management. His research work over the years have spanned from plant physiology to understanding and modeling the carbon cycle. Through his career, Professor Datwal has taken up multiple pivotal bureaucratic positions, contributing both in application domain and academy. Joining me as co-host in our conversation with Professor Dadwal is Radha Krishna Kavaluru, who is currently a Scientist S.D. at the National Remote Sensing Center, Hyderabad. Perfect. So, uh, right. Uh, Again, thank you, sir. And uh, let's just, I guess, go into the conversation straight up. I mean, we, all of us are quite familiar with your main research work. And we know that you've worked quite extensively in remote sensing and agriculture, and you've sort of revolutionized the field as well. But uh, before we go further and uh, talk more on that, I would really like to ask you about your initial interest. How did you choose pl- to study plant physiology? Because it's a very specific thing, right? And uh, like Yeah,
1: so uh, plant physiology has the advantage. Uh, if you really understand physiology, physiology means how living beings function. If you study human beings, it includes biochemistry, it includes biophysics, it includes, you know, the structure. So basically... Uh, It is a very scientific, uh, it's not cataloging like classification, Mm. or it is not something very, very uh, abstract. But it really goes deep into how a cell functions, how a leaf functions, how plants grow. So it goes into the all biochemistry, etc. So incidentally, my interest is in larger things, biochemistry also, is is trying to read physics, etc. also. So, uh, I mean, it really fits a bill. And uh, some people may go for ecology, but in, th- in that era, ecology was not there as part of IRI It had only biochemistry, plant physiology, okay. genetics, and micro. Yeah. Otherwise, all were applied subjects. So, within that, I thought, to me, plant physiology is natural because you can appear only one exam, you have to make a choice. At that time, at that instant, okay, what is in your mind, you know, when you are 18, 19, you make a choice. Maybe uninformed or ill-informed, but
0: still you make a choice. Yes. Ha. So uh, so, be, ha, so, like I was saying, I, would, we, we would, I really want to go ahead and ask you a lot of questions about plant physiology, but before we do that, like you mentioned that you were at a point, uh, 19, 20 years old, trying to make a decision informed or uninformed but uh, we know that you further moved into the space sector so at the same time while you were deciding uh, coincidentally it was also the time when the first close to the time when the first human landed on the moon and also the time when the Indian space program was quite taking up the shape did that have any impact or did you have an inkling at that point that maybe this was something that you would want to go into further in your life
1: no We are aware and we are reading, right? but then uh, at that stage, you all think this is all engineer's job (laughs) okay, or something, you know, technologist or engineers. You never think that it is closed anywhere within your sort of circle or anything. It it is important. You read it in the newspaper, science magazines also. In India, it is still in infancy and it is abroad somewhere in the US. So it is so far removed that. You are aware, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't. You don't spend time on it thinking.
0: Uh-huh. I mean, you had not thought at all that maybe. No, that's it why I said, you it's would it's so far understand. removed.
1: It's um, a newspaper <laughs> heading. It's it will be an article in a magazine. Yeah. So, yeah. You leave through. That's all. It doesn't. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Uh Okay. So, so I guess uh, from this point we can go further into the plant physiology bit. Uh so, like we were talking about, uh, I think after this, you ended up going for your PhD as well. So, yeah. So, uh, so when,
1: uh, yeah, I'll explain to you as uh, first you do masters, which is like uh, two years. And uh, so I, I was in a uh, area of, uh, which is plant physiology and biochemistry. Basically, if you have a plant and you give it water stress. How does the plant respond? So, uh, and uh, plants have two things because plants must absorb uh, nitrogen from the soil in form of nitrate. So the first reaction which happens is this nitrate is converted into nitrite and then to ammonia before it can go into a protein. That is done by an enzyme called nitrate reductase. So in drought, this nitrate taste does not function. Secondly, when there is less water, so plants are, uh, you know, they, they want to save for a rainy day. What they do is, uh, they're this extra, uh, these uh, various chemicals, they convert it into a amino acid called proline. Mm-hmm. And they accumulate in the cell waiting for the water. So then again, from this proline, they will make other amino acid and more protein. So my thesis was: uh, take a barley plant, put it in pot, don't give it water, and then do the enzyme assay of nitrate reductase and crush the leaf and find out what is the amount of
0: proline. Hmm. Okay, that that sounds quite uh, intriguing because I mean. Can you also mention what are the tools that are employed to this so basically it's
1: a biochemistry work so you take a leaf you crush it then you put it in very low temperature then what you do is for proline you take a something which will dissolve the proline and many other things then you take it to a spectrophotometer and use a wavelength dual wavelength which will really Uh, allow you to from the absorption band know what is the concentration if you know the absorption coefficient so you should take a measured amount of leaf uh, dilute it with measured amount of water as far as the other part is there you take the tissue you crush it you uh, put in a solution nitrate then after 5 minute 10 minute 15 minute 20 minute see at what rate the nitrate is getting consumed. So that tells you the enzyme activity. So so one of them is a accumulating uh, amino acid proline and the other one is a bioassay. It means the rate of reaction of so, so That is how.
0: Okay. Uh, sir, also for your PhD work, you worked on wheat modeling, uh, a part of it. Yeah, part yeah. So yes, so...
1: Uh, I wanted to see how plants behave with the natural environment, so very interesting concept was uh, we were sowing crops every 15 day. First October, 16th October, first November, 16th November, first December, 16th December. Like not truly because that was the plan, but four five days here and there because you have to indent the labor. Uh, uh, it may rain, so finally you will have a different thing. Okay. So. So, over two years, I almost, you know, had 17 wheat sowing, I mean, I have a lot of variables. Then we were following the plant, we were following it microscopically, also by dry matter, by leaf area, and literally did very, very detailed, you know, observation. Observations were all fine, except that, you know, uh, for making the growth curve, you know, wheat grains grow, the grain when it is filling. So, we will go with test tube, pick three spikes, take the central grain, pluck it and put it immediately in a you know, glass tube, close it and come to lab to weigh it. So you have replicates, you have... A, then every three days you really know at what rate dry matter is accumulating in the grain. So basically, uh, if you... Uh, any living organism, you can break it into two parts. One is, inside we have a clock, that is called phenology. When does the process start and when it ends? Second, when you are accumulating biomass, there is a growth rate, delta W by delta T. So we, we exactly measure. But not only that, so I picked up this, then wrote to so many people, you know, in Canada, here, there. And really many people sent a lot of printouts of the computer program in Fortran. So, in that era, the first computer we used was IBM 1620. It was a big room with flashing light. Even for sign cost, stands you have to add the cards. And it used to be cards, which you have to punch. 80 character, card, IBM. And then for punching machine, you can't do in the office. So, you have to either go at 7 o'clock in the morning or after 7 p.m. Because that whole big room has a lot of... Lot uh, you know, uh, typing, ladies who are punching cards all day, they are the employees, students can't enter, students are permitted morning, slowly it went up. So finally, because of this, I spent two, one year studying, two years of observations and two years of statistical analysis. So I, I, I wrote a pretty thick thesis. Uh, on the phenology etc and it had some very interesting results in fact when the first uh, wheat uh, crop simulation model was you know developed by some other team they used my thesis data till that time it had the most accurate data of the phenology, so i am digressing now so what happens uh, so uh, at three and a half year your fellowship stops fellowship is for 3 years Working at three and a half, so my guide will go on telling right thesis, right thesis. I said no till my growth rates are fixed. I will not do till my uh, you know multivariate regression doesn't come. You know I won't go So for that I used to even go to Delhi University, and for the first time saw IBM three hundred and sixty by forty four. You know in those days even to do a multiple regression, it, it, it was an effort. But we learned
0: it. Things. seems quite a challenging thing because, I mean, even to do the simplest tasks that we find simple today, like, you know, managing the computers and all of that, you had to go to a different university and function with that. It, it just seems a, quite a lot of effort, physically and mentally. Sir,
2: so, uh, you were talking about uh, crop modeling, sir. So, yes. what are some of the parameters that you vary to see the change in growth of this uh, crop?
1: Uh, so, uh, What we did was, uh, one, uh, we looked at the temperature, daily temperature, right? The second was the daily radiation. So really to convert your uh, sunshine hours into mega joules per meter square, you know, that sort of thing, watts per meter square, but it's all those issues were there. And third, we looked at uh, the day length. So, the day length basically comes when the sun disk is actually half the uh, its diameter below the horizon, right? And then you really have to, because it is not the length of the day, it is the uh, rate of change of the day length. Whether it is increasing or decreasing, that influences the plant development cycle. So, literally, we developed equations... Uh, in terms of how much radiation megajoules absorbed per gram of dry matter produced. just like efficiency and the delta DL positive negative vis-a-vis whether the now development will be faster or slower and then the temperature. So basically a biological organism has two things. development. Development you talk of reaching various stages and growth which is accumulation of dry matter so by this analysis of you know natural environment and this type of breakup we could for the wheat growth uh, develop quantitative relations between the phenology and and we actually demonstrated which for the first time uh, that uh, the wheat uh, irrespective of the species etc when something, uh, some 396 growing degree days accumulate between anthesis, then the grain stops growing. So what will happen if you want to plot the mean temperature on x-axis and the duration of grain growth, right? So this phenology, it will basically steeply fall. So we could get temperatures of, from 14 degrees to 27. So we had the duration as long as close to 55 days and as less as 14 days, right? So this is phenology. Secondly, because radiations were also different, the rate per day was different. So you have two curves in a changing environment. You will have the duration and the rate per day. And their product will determine how much yield will Yeah, so this brings to very interesting thing, where the, you may not know uh, the early history of India's space application program. So, so basically one, Professor Pisharotti worked with ICAR to do that coconut wilt. Then Professor Satish Dhawan uh, requested IARI to, uh, you know, do some work on agriculture remote sensing. And then at, at Space Application Center, Dr. Baldev Sahai was there. Uh, he, he came from TIFR, he had a PhD in physics from Chicago. And they did the Arise experiment, agriculture resource inventory survey experiment, where with aerial photograph, they tried to do crop area. wheat in Patiala and groundnut in Anantpur And then, uh, those people one of the persons who was also involved junior at the, that time but by the time we came he was senior was jai singh parihar who superannuated as the deputy director of the application area land so it was in that period so i used to see uh, two three uh, sag scientists in the lab in water technology center they even had put up uh, so they used to have the temperature gun they had even put a, a you know a microwave radiometer to measure backscatter etc but then when you are doing phd you you see that but it doesn't register on your mind you have too many problems of your own yeah. Sir, um, also to set things in perspective sir,
2: um you have transition from purely crop modeling to the based
1: and forecasting on so the first issue was, can you identify wheat, discriminate wheat or map it? So there also, uh, there were various, you know, suggestions, pressures and all that. We said we will go to Haryana, Punjab. So myself and Parihar and Kalu Barneh, we actually took a jeep from Ahmedabad traveled two and a half days. So came to the Central Soil Cell Research Institute and Punjab Agriculture University. We spoke to their dean research, found collaborators, and we said, we will work here. Then we had to order the data and wait for a couple of months. Then the tape will arrive from NRSA. Then you will extract it. Where, what is there? You have marked it on the maps. Then you will do so you will extract statistical pattern and do a pattern recognition. So,
0: so oh. But is we were the can... first
1: one to really uh, do uh, the wheat mapping in Karnal district. If you go to the DOS annual report of that era, 1983-84. So our first picture of wheat map is as a part of the Department of Space annual report.
2: Sir, uh, this uh, mapping of wheat or crops uh, was also extended to other
1: crops as well? Yeah, terms. yeah. In fact, we did. Uh, then uh, we worked in uh, Katakpuri for rice. Uh, later on, we tried to do uh, groundnut. It was not separable. In fact, we checked that uh, Landsat TM allowed groundnut because the uh, shortwave infrared, 1.66 channel is very critical. IRS 1A didn't have 1A and 1B. So then we spoke to uh, Dr. George Joseph and Sri Kiran Kumar was head of the sensor development division. So in SAC, many meeting shouting this that committees and with great effort the SWIR band was introduced. So we, we provided evidence uh, that uh, this band uh, actually helps in Crop discrimination, which are important to us. Later on, we had by that time shown for mustard also between wheat and mustard separation. See, uh, it's a water absorption band. If you have two crops, one where the leaves have less moisture and other more moist leaf. You know, the mustard leaves are you know dicotomous and they have more per mass the moisture content. Wheat have more uh, graminaceous leaves. Huh? which have the less amount of water per leaf unit area or leaf mass. So, satellite really uh, gets the difference, Uh, so that water will absorb more and there will be less reflectance. And that is what aids the discrimination.
0: So, before we move further uh, on the details, I would really like to step back a little and understand like, uh, there were quite a lot of, uh, I believe there were Indian uh, satellites that were studying the crop modeling as well. And can you talk about a little like, apart from the moisture that you've already mentioned, what are the other aspects uh, when you are looking at a picture, which uh, from from a satellite, what are the other aspects that we look at while we're uh, looking at the crop modeling aspect?
1: Yeah, so uh, see the, uh, what is very simple in theory is much more complicated in practice so first thing what you observe is uh, that to get a better discrimination you should have a better date data i have already told you you should have better data it means more channel now the problem with optical data is uh, cloud will exactly be there in your study district when the satellite passes now if you have only one satellite which has a 24 day repetitivity if you have a cloud then the february data will become march and by march half the crop may have become yellow and half may be green or if you are in january none of the crop is separable all are very young plant and same green so the cloud and proper acquisition became the problem that is why we had a committee i was also a member and there are publications also we showed that if you have a 50 meter every week, it will sort of give you, uh, even with 50% cloud probability, once in 15 days, you will get a picture. So in addition to improving the spatial resolution, the wide field sensor, which first time was 188, and by 1C, it was brought to 56. It was through our research, we demonstrated to solve the agriculture problem, you should have more repetitivity. That is why India developed this unique uh, observation system of list 4, list 3, and ABIFS, Right? So, so we were literally uh, sort of the agriculture team used to interact very strongly with Dr. George Joseph and Kiran Kumar, and they would really do this identifications, sensor definition, parameterization. Uh, saturation radiance, spectral bandwidth, a huge sort of things. While we would do, you know, discrimination, rain-based yield modeling, and all that as one part of the project, but uh, with our colleagues in the space technology, we would really be optimizing and defining uh, the sensor, sensor system parameter.
2: So also sir, uh, we talked about uh, uh, utilization of this irs data list, right so uh, some problems will also be there uh, with respect to only optical data Back yeah. uh, so was there any- rice rice problem? was
1: the issue so that is why once the radar set came uh, so our division uh, a group started working on uh, so earlier there was a group which used to look SAR only as either geology by taking a photographic picture or SAR for soil moisture. So that group will go on arguing and fighting with this group which said this SAR uh, we will do rice. Right? So there, uh, you know, the good thing about ISRO system is this research, I mean, within the ISRO is open presented, reviewed, argued, fought, correct, every, every inch. So uh, then there were two entirely divergent views, somebody telling, no, you can't see rice at all. It is a soil moisture, microwave penetrates vegetation. Because they were working on soil moisture for so many years and they have more publications. So it used to be, but finally our, the crop division, the land resources division really showed and proved that when you fill a field with water and as the rice emerges, right, it has a unique temporal trajectory of microwave backscatter, volume scattering that allows you to discriminate and map rice. I mean, this would have taken six, seven years to prove and convince and do. But, yeah. So then, the uh, that is why uh, the RISAT 1A became a priority. There were other issues. There, at that time, people are fighting whether it should be X band SAR or C band. Our aerial was X band. We said X actually is too much uh, surface scattering. If you have C, which is a combination of volume and scattering, it should really be there. So at the end, that C band should be there. Then for coverage, uh, we would require a scan SAR mode not the spotlight or that type of mode. Then uh, you start worrying about what should be the incidence angle. You, you get the point. So the, yes. s- s- for Earth observation, you, you need to optimize on each parameter and there you should have a valid reason. You should have studies. So this our entire SAC agriculture group was, I would say, very proactive. They really understood what sensors we, we were not designing sensors, but we were really evaluating each property and what is useful and to what extent and what are the reasons and that sort of thing.
2: Yes, sir. So uh, with the set of the satellites and the data we have, uh, with respect to remote sensing in agriculture, what are some of the parameters that we can calculate uh, so that uh, we can predict uh, crop forecast? Uh, yeah, so that
1: that goes to the other part of the story. So by, you know, 96, 97, we were doing many things, this area, but the yields, most of the time were either empirical or they were purely based on weather. So I I became head of the crop modeling division in 97 or 98. 98 perhaps. So, uh, and then we uh, were eight, nine people. We said we will, go the physical way. We will try to get leaf area. You know, I I had this entire experience of uh, crop physiology or plant physiology of growth. So I exactly know LAI how to do, I I can compute photosensing. So literally uh, globally it was being done but not in India. So we brought in how remote sensing will do a parameter which will grow into a crop simulation model which will then Grow the plant. So now you actually have a plant growing in field. Can you simulate and assimilate the remote sensing data and get capture the parameter of growth, LAI, and dry matter and yield by nudging with data into this and then make a forecast. So yeah, so that we introduced that uh, for five six years we showed many experiment uh, various type of you know programming linkage. But in 2004, then I was asked to go to Deirat. So from agriculture, I became total remote sensing and from, you know, core getting this to I became teacher. So I shifted.
0: So you sort of shifted into an academic setting after this point. Yeah, But it, it
1: was training and academy because mostly it was training, but we had two masters program, uh, which was with the ITC, Netherlands. On disaster management and geoinformatics, and we then strengthened the Mtech program, which was affiliated to Andhra University. That is between 2004 to 10, when I was at IIRS. So there also uh, we strengthened this academy. We renegotiated the international masters, and to do research, we established field observatories including the very interesting is the ediflux tower, which basically is a big tower, which has a sonic animometer and an open path CO2 analyzer. It directly measures the carbon dioxide exchange uh, from the forest canopy undisturbed. And uh, ISRO or NRSC or IIRS group, we were operating five in the country and we have the longest running continuous data. So, that is a sub-story I didn't touch, Uh, so we, my uh, thesis and my work on wheat and this modeling, uh, the Indian National Science Academy uh, gave me Young Scientist Medal in 1989, right? so our discrimination modeling and my phd all put together so very interesting part is uh, you you get some 20 30000 rupees per year to do your research so we had a director pramod kale at sac uh, i said sir uh, I can write something and they will send 30,000. But anyway we are spending crores. So can I have uh, two students to work? So Shri Pramod Kale uh, uh, was picked up by Vikram Sarabhai. He was also uh, in VSSC initially as the electronics manager. Then he was in US when the INSAT was being built. He was the and finally, he actually came back once at VSSC as the director VSSC also people. So, Pramod Kale is a very, very versatile person. So he, he permitted, so uh, then uh, we talked to the botany department, Professor Bora, and he spent, he sent two students who would be paid that fellowship from this money to do their university. And why Karman came is very interesting. So when I was in IRI, we had a professor of plant physiology, Professor S. K. Sinha. He was a person of national repute. So he attended the 1980 onwards when the CO2 climate change was there. So with Professor Swaminathan etc., he attended many important con- international conferences like Billiards etc. So once in one my visit to IRI, he told me you should work uh, on carbon cycle because it is fundamental for earth it's important for climate agriculture modifies it and remote sensing is the tool to study
0: okay that sort of combines all the technical areas yes. so he,
1: he says so uh, but in isro it is not like that your bread and butter is crop forecasting paid project so on saturdays I used to work exclusively on carbon cycle.
0: Okay. So, sir, uh, when you talk about working on carbon cycle, what are the technical things that you are looking at? Like, so,
1: first is there was nothing. You you don't, didn't understand carbon cycle, mm-hmm. so you read. The second thing is paperwork. Can you really put on paper carbon cycle of India? In fact, there were no uh, published work on carbon cycle. Uh, Dr. Shailesh Nayib, if you know, he was uh, the left from SAG, he became director in COIS, then he became the Secretary of Ministry of Earth Sciences. He was a geologist. The cycle is biogeochemical cycle. So there is a bio and geology. So on Saturdays, we would sit together and read and talk to each other. And then we did make uh, one of the earliest paper, which... In the entire national scale, tries to summarize the number taken from various literature. So, but but this was you know off the issue. Saturday work, ah, right. so yeah. Monday to Friday you can't talk morning to evening. That will only be crop forecasting.
0: Sir, uh, but even when you're talking about carbon cycle, um, how, like how do you map it for an entire nation? I mean, it's not something that's in your hand, right? Like so, what are the Techniques that you're using, or on ground, yeah, what so, is the method?
1: So, so, basically, now anything you want to do, nation or globe. So, the first thing is can you map it? Right. Right. So, map gives you some areas. Hmm. Then comes that parameter what you have. Can you have classes to incorporate that parameter? You can have forest, crop, wasteland. Right. Hmm. Then the next question comes, can you really see a biophysical parameter like height of the tree, weight of the wood? Now at this stage it becomes indirect. Then the last stage will be, not last, just before the last. Can you map the fluxes? Because these are pools. So basically it's a bucket. You have found the water in the bucket. Right. But now you have to find that water rate bucket is getting filled and water rate bucket is getting leaking. Right. That is the cycle. Okay. The cycle is, you know, plants assimilating, right. respiring, human beings cutting it, changing it, it going every day falling into the soil, respiration coming up, right? right. Then climate changing, the rate of photosynthesis, etc. So dry matter accumulation, I knew uh, of the crops, but then I had to study on trees how to how the trees behave. Okay. How do you model it? Okay. And to have a system with undisturbed measurement is the flux tower. That is what we created. Okay. Flux tower is costs about one two crore rupees and it's very difficult. It's far away. You have to manage it. Mm. Logistics are always much more than they so uh, I, I was parallelly then doing two three things uh, we we were moving in one track which is the crop forecasting uh-huh. then from the my sort of using the excuse of uh, insa young scientist medal i started doing carbon cycling and then i continue to do so now i do full time carbon cycle only
0: how do you, like you were talking about there are a lot of effects, like there is a tree which the mass of the tree matters but how do you put it into calculation when you are making a cycle? So
1: so, so basically Mm -hmm. uh, one way is to put boxes and arrows and put aggregate numbers and you have some sort of upper and lower bounds Mm -hmm. the second one is to Uh, convert it into a grid system, and for each one, a separate type of cycling you do. And uh, now, of course, the second one is done. The third one is everything you convert it into a modeling framework. Like, you know, from plant growth to crop simulation, you really put in a, a terrestrial carbon model or the entire land surface model. And you run the model where climate, vegetation type, growth and carbon cycle, along with water, interact to control each other. The number of parameters goes on increasing. And for all these cycles, the human influence also makes the challenge. So that also. But uh, in IIRS, we did very two, three very important parts. Not only we set up flux tower. So I was made... Uh, Project Director for National Carbon Project, NCP. And we did uh, countries' uh, first independent, you know, uh, total standing carbon in the trees and total carbon in the soil by collecting 2,000 samples spread all over India, almost 50-70 collaborators, and use remote sensing to stratify the India. I mean, we have a lot of publications and lot of citations for that work. Oh, if, if one goes to Google and searches my name, you would really get those papers and citations in oh, fact, soil organic carbon is uh, almost two to three times the vegetation, more organic below the soil than actually above the ground so
2: actually uh... Um, Most of us do not understand this, can you just explain us what is soil organic carbon and carbon sequestration and how do you measure
1: it from remote sensing? So the challenge is very simple. We can start from very simple part. Uh, Carbon was formed when the universe was formed, correct? High energy particles have to react and then the carbon so carbon has remained the same then earth was formed right at that time it was atmosphere was mostly carbon like venus etc you really have that then some stage between 15 billion to 4 billion years right earth formed and then after another billion year or so something photosynthesis happened so living organism came so you had very high carbon dioxide then slowly these people started making it into a, a organic matter. So you have a geological carbon which is in the rock, lot of carbon which was fixed, which will go in the ocean and get into compact and become coal and petroleum, right? So slowly, but there would be a glacial and interglacial, either controlled by orbit of the earth or various other processes. So you'll get ice age and mini ice age. So finally, what happened by uh, you had in the air around 290 parts per million carbon dioxide. And only uh, it was the uh, Swante Arrhenius who showed that it is the CO2 and water vapor which absorb this infrared radiation not while coming while going out and they trap this heat that is why the earth survives if there was too much co2 will be too hot and if it was not there we would really be freezing cold right so then by early 50s what was known was from 1860 your burning of coal in the industrial revolution So there were a lot of debates that carbon dioxide is increasing. By 1870, it was proven by measuring the carbon dioxide in Hawaii Island, Mauna Lua, which is a volcanic island, that CO2 is really rising almost like one part of ppm per year or so. Then the climatology, numerical weather prediction people showed what it would mean. So by 1880, uh, we really knew that this carbon dioxide increase is very dangerous. Then again, you know, we created a what's called United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCC. Then the global politics started. Some people will say it is the deforestation which is causing, somebody will say this. Ocean people say ocean will absorb, don't worry. Somebody will say aerosols are increasing, they will cool the atmosphere. So last thirty years, this tamasha is going on, right? Uh, but but the crux of the matter is across the year, as you you know, forests disappear or are planted, CO2 you have different you have different vegetation time, you have yearly fluctuation in rainfall, temperature, how much plants are absorbing and how much is coming out is not properly quantified so you you need to add more observations and approach it from four different sides one is the observation side second is the inventory side third is the modeling side and the fourth side is if all things you are getting correct then if i measure by satellite the columnar co2 right I measure columnar CO2. I have a land model. I have an ocean climate driven model. I know anthropogenic, how much petrol is being burnt and where are the factories. So I could invert by pure transport of CO2. Nothing happens to CO2 in the air. You can measure it or you can transport it, which is equivalent to wind transport. So I should be able to invert the columnar CO2 abundance into this net source sink rate. And this net sourcing rate must be then compatible of our ground-based, you know, bottom-up inventory. So you have top-down whole atmosphere monitoring by satellite and you know from the ground and mapping that this thing is happening. Now the two, are they compatible or incompatible? That is the proof. You know, because you can't really measure. You uh, approach a problem from two different perspectives and make a hypothesis and prove that this really is hypothesis is accepted. And if there are some uh, technical, you know, uh, assumptions or things which do not match, somebody will point out, then you can devise another experiment to address. So uh, it is a function of inventory and going up observation how much co2 is there anyway now many places and the satellite retrieval of dynamics of globally where and how much and how it dynam- see it's, it's a continuously changing system and which is a advection convection horizontal transport emission uptake is such a dynamic system that without satellite, without retrieval, and without both the approaches, inversion as well as positive modeling, you can't say that you have understood. Because what is the purpose of all this, Allah? That what would be the CO2 in 2050? Hmm. So science starts with observation, hypothesis, model, and goes to prediction. But the problem with this prediction is, this prediction involves oceanography, it involves atmosphere transport, it involves forest, it involves uh, socio-economy, whether it, uh, it involves fossil fuel. Mm. So it actually involves economy, it involves uh, large number of discipline to say what trajectory the earth is taking. That is why it is so fascinating and complicated. Very interesting
2: question. So, uh, actually, in the, in the past few decades or years, we have established that uh, amount of greenhouse gases of global warming exists. Sir, uh, whether this will affect the somehow the crop yield or
1: in any way? So, yeah, so basically, now there are three issues. Uh, one, more CO2 means more, you can have higher photosynthesis. But this simplistic view doesn't hold because to do more photosynthesis, Uh, you have more nitrogen also to be absorbed so at that stage crop will become nitrogen limited and more photosynthesis will not take place the second one is this also means warming warming means plants will develop faster so growth duration may be less or the more respiration may happen at night so your net accumulation of carbon in the grain can go low then you have third problem that this alters the rainfall pattern some areas may have more drought some areas may have more flood some areas may have better growth so how spatially this will pan out so uh, that simple question of what will happen uh, to be understood each of the separate parameter has to have predictive path that is why uh, we, uh, so what you do is you take previous history by taking a model and then make a longer predictive model and see how you can better back project the past and future you convert it into scenarios that's all.
0: Sir uh, like you mentioned that while studying the whole system it's quite essential to understand how the oceans work or how the terrains are working or the trees are functioning. So uh, and the major technique that is used is of remote sensing. So. Uh, what are the uh, difference in uh, the methods of remote sensing while we're looking at a terrain or while we're looking at an ocean region? Because of course, there must be some barrier issue which arises due to the ocean.
1: So ocean is, uh, you basically look at the sea surface temperature. Right. You look at ocean chlorophyll. Okay. Uh, you convert it into columnar photosynthesis. You also uh, look at the wind, etc which change the flux between air and ocean. But a lot of ocean carbon cycle uh, is hidden because it is in below the visibility. Ocean are the largest, you know, uh, almost 80-90% of the global short-term carbon cycle is in the ocean. But all this happens deep in the ocean. But their flux rates are smaller. So you need to do uh, Their remote sensing comes in very interesting. There are Argo floats and there are, you know, other uh, instruments. So uh, they measure a lot of ocean parameter. They go on drifting and there are those which, you know, go into the ocean and then they come out. So when they come out, they bust uh, the sampled data and send it to the satellite. So the satellite communication gets used for data collection. Uh, you shouldn't use it only as a remote sensing uh-huh. in fact you know oceans oceans are so diverse argo floats uh, how will they communicate how will you get in real time data so argo actually uh, is a. you link it to a dcp satellite it basically whatever wind satellite it is measuring it transmits to the space and the satellites pick the signal and pick. Mm-hmm.
0: And sir, what about uh, glaciers uh, also, Lucas? Yeah, so glaciers
1: uh, have the next issue. Uh, You, uh, so there is a thermal thing which is coming up from below. It has a melt. At the edge, you can have carving of glacier and it can be in the water. So you have various forms of fixed ice, uh, icebergs, seasonal snow ice. So satellite will detect it. Uh, So at poles you have a lot of ice, Uh, so up to now we were simply mapping this area, but now what we can do is we have LIDAR, right? So whether the thickness of the ice has increased, then we have other data where we can distinguish between frozen and uh, molten snow. Old and fresh. In summer there is a melting. Right? So what is the extent of melting? Third, now what happens at the edge of the continent this uh, ice breaks into an iceberg. So basically uh, as far as this cryosphere is concerned, uh, there are a large number of parameters which can be done by uh, satellite remote sensing. You always would require field data, no doubt, but this spatial and continuous monitoring of continental scale type of things, processes, can, and then interrelationships can only be done by remote. So that's why uh, the earth observation is very important part of the current, uh, all this research on earth system science
0: very large number of disciplines. Mm -hmm. Right, makes sense. Uh, So uh, now, sir, I guess, uh, I mean, I think we can move a bit further into the application ends of uh, all the science that we've talked about today. Uh, One thing I really wanted to ask, because agriculture is part of a civilization as a whole, for sure. Um, With all the research that happens in the scientific community, uh, do you think that there is a direct link between policy making and, and the research work that is happening, and if yes, what is to, to what extent is it being used?
1: Yeah. So so what happens? Uh, the answer is yes.
0: Okay.
2: Correct.
1: Okay. There is, uh, but now uh, whether it is at that uh, that scale and speed <coughs> is the one where. Later people start, you know, agreeing or disagreeing. Because the point is transforming societies, uh, there are a large number of other factors which come into play. Social economic, education, delivery systems, many things, you know. Scientists are still a homogeneous lot and they can say it should be done like that. But a poor person who, has to work in the sun and then he is not sure whether he will be able to have enough money and grain for next six months right and maybe he's indebted whether whether land is his own or is somebody so this socio-economic education and these things they start playing they determine much more strongly so these factors uh, become dominate our pure science and pure policy making yeah so so basically i mean we think it is linear science Uh outcome policy and society benefits no it it doesn't so straight and so linear way it doesn't happen. there are too many other factors see without understanding this socio-economic conditions even sociology there's a lot of politics also is there yeah and and there is always difference between haves and have nots it it comes as north south it comes as this and that then in the village also it comes with people who who sort of control more Then in the village also there will be a disadvantaged so so this is a issue which
0: but but sir do you think that we've been able to reach out to the basic human uh, like the science community especially in the field of agriculture because that's like
1: yeah, yeah, see the point is they do, but they also recognize uh, whenever there is a new technology, there is early adopters. Right, yeah. And then also the technologies, access sometimes require money. I mean, suppose they have built a new machine, obviously people with that will come. Then whether in the village there is a system to sort of service that machine and do sale, industry comes in. Because scientists don't go to villager, whether it is seed, pesticide, tractor sale or whatever, it is the salesperson and that industry which basically determines. Now industries also are now more; they now understand and appreciate those are in the agri business. So we have a very simplistic notion, which actually.
2: Uh, what are some of the applications other than agriculture which are very impactful that we can use remote sensing data and
1: right? Uh, so one thing which we learned at NRSC is the disaster information for disaster management. So there can be nothing more important like you know once you have cyclone use the satellite data and then you predict before five days at what time and what speed it is going to hit where, then on the ground having, you know, the socials and the administrative system to shift that people out. Just imagine, you know, 20, 30 years ago, every cyclone means you know, 1000 to 10,000 people die. Now that numbers are 4, 8, 10, that too, because of the rain at some place, right? Now flood, we forecast, but flood uh, is such a phenomenon, people don't easily migrate. So I, and in case of drought, we use remote sensing more to pay compensation rather than work. But on a bigger set, I will say, uh, you know, uh, disaster management, information support, relief, rehabilitation, prevention, preparedness, this entire gamut of uh, using it for the benefit. And mind you, The people affected are the poorest, right? So, and the information is being done by satellite, etc., so that they can tell the agencies, please go there. There somebody. Then there are other applications uh, now, uh, which are more towards this infrastructure and commerce and that related, which make more money. But uh, then there would be things now which will slowly come they are related to sustainability monitoring and verification of sustainable development goals watershed conservation soil erosion control
0: so given that we're also looking at disaster management has there also been efforts put in into using remote sensing for city planning while building yeah
1: in fact city planning a lot of things so city planning what happens Uh, It is done at three different places. Mm -hmm. There is a master plan. Then uh, there are TP schemes and then there are actual layout, etc. So at master plan scale, remote sensing is very useful because you see the connectedness. But when you come to an individual section or block at the TP level, there you need centimeter scale. So there are drones or ground survey and GPS becomes very important. But GPS itself is a space technology, right? Because their precise location becomes... Worse. Sir, also, uh,
2: when you talk about disasters, right, sir, uh, there's, there's lots of landslides at heated Terrain and a lot of people are affected. Uh, as we predict floods using remote emergency, can we
1: also do landslides? No, b- what landslide, okay, I'll tell you the very... because IAERS was also involved and NRSC is also done extensive. So the landslide, the first thing was people were mapping the landslide. Then later on, what we could do is, we could create a landslide hazard zone atlases. Basically, a set of conditions of slope, uh, rock type, you know, many other factors, vegetation, uh, they make only certain spots more landslide hazard. Uh, They exist and you need to revise. Then at the third stage, what happens? For prediction, can you really merge the real-time rainfall? Where flagging red zones that here, these be careful site of warning and at fourth stage what happens now these days you have satellite data that you can almost uh, daily capture some areas. So After all, a landslide is nothing but a sliding or mass movement. So if you can really get a picture daily or sub-daily, and if there are known markers, you can find out the flow rates. Now for many people, including with SAR data, etc., you can find at what rate, some or differential rate at which Earth is moving or sliding. Right? It, that we, because you don't go from good place to a landslide place. Uh, so, pore pressure builds up, there is a slope instability, then at some places, a soil sort of gives way, then there is a small movement, it has more load and bigger movement, and then you have landslide. And sometimes what happens, heavy rain or earthquake, So even recovering landslides, it re-triggers. So now there is a very good understanding. A lot of things we do. But uh, you can't really convert it into every landslide, every point, every day predict. You you get the point. But uh, we know much more and we have many tools. But whether they are at a stage that pan India, pan every landslide, you can go on warning. Maybe it will take some time.
2: Sir, you just mentioned about uh, differential movement of uh, uh, land,
1: So, sir, is there any possibility that we can also do seismic plate movement? Seismic, anyway, we are doing. See, the whole point is, uh, the uh, Geodesy and other community, they were already first doing what is called very long baseline interferometry, VLBI. So you have, you know, a ground station 2,000 km away. And you basically measure a satellite or something, which is at a, say, one constant point. The two actually start giving you different numbers. You can find out. Then uh, you have what are called cores, which is continuously operating receiving station of GPS. So from the cores, uh, from the same satellite, uh, you can really find out. Uh, so in India also many cores are there. Uh, so you can say uh, it, the Indian plate is moving three millimeter in this direction every year or something. So the literature on plate tectonic through uh, GPS, cores, VLBI is huge actually, hundreds of papers, including by Indian authors. And we also, I think, did NRSC also did a couple of work.
0: Yes, um, I, I think we've taken up quite a lot of your time. So we'll just conclude with last one or two questions, if that's okay. Um, uh, I mean, we've talked about uh, agriculture and all the remote sensing areas, but can you tell us right now, what is the upcoming trends or advances that we're expecting in the field of remote sensing uh, and in terms of agriculture and other areas?
1: So what is happening if you look at remote sensing, this philosophy of remote sensing is changing one is now there are more business and commercial applications your friend Satsure is a one example right Uh, the second point is your other friends are there now uh, governments have made satellite data free entire sentinel and european commission data is free so is the landsat only high resolution private companies will make So maybe we have woken up to it now. Maybe there would be Indian companies. Pixel is anyway uh, would have sent perhaps the Anand, that hyperspectral. Today PSNV launch was there. So uh, now three things are happening. Uh, The commercial remote sensing will be with private people who would really drive what type of application. A traditional Medium scale national global mapping data are all free. So much data is there, nobody is able to analyze. So the downstream industry of generating customized products and services is the largest opening available for people with analytical remote sensing, earth observation, or pure data analysis sort of. But new uh, categories of observing earth whether it is in terahertz whether it is hyperspectral whether you know uh, cube sets having uh, measuring even at 50 meter the emission of methane etc like ghg sat which is a commercial product uh, slowly uh, the private sector will also move into from space weather and climate data collection, which up to now has been only in space. Right. So there are more downstream data and services and that type of opportunities than ever before.
0: This was a conversation from the fourth season of Zeroing In, the science podcast, where we're exploring the foundations of how cities were found, formed, and developed over the centuries. We extend our sincerest gratitude to Professor Rike Dadwal for this intriguing discussion and taking us on this amusing journey of understanding the food in our plate and how a nation keeps its population fed. On behalf of the Zeroing In team for this episode, which included, Radha Krishna along with the season team of Zeroing In, and I am Shreya Mishra. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. We'll be back with a new episode next week with further interesting questions and conversations with eminent Indian scientists from across the world. If you have any suggestions, you can visit us on zeroingin.org or write to us on zeroinginpodcast at the gmail.com. And follow us on our Instagram or Facebook handles at the rate zeroing in podcast for the latest updates. Until next time.